Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. I'm also losing my voice this week, as you can probably tell. Theoretical physicist Carlo Rovelli is the pioneer of loop quantum gravity, a leading contender in the famous quest to unite quantum theory and relativity. But he's most famous to the public as the author of poetic works of popular science including the blockbuster Seven Brief Lessons in Physics and his latest, White Holes, Into the Horizon. We brought him together to discuss that book with the actor and director Simon McBurney, a man whose work at theatre company Complicite challenges the very limits of what theatre can be. Their moderator was Hannah McInnes. I'm going to stop now before my voice completely goes. Enjoy the conversation. Can I start, Carlo, by asking you, I said that you make white holes accessible to some of us who may not have got so excited about them. And you say in the book you have two readers in mind. Yes. Who are these readers? Oh, when I write, I think, I I really think of two people. One is somebody who knows absolutely nothing about science. (laughs) (laughs) I have a question for you then. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Can I first ask a question? Yes, of course. <laughs> Complicité, complicity, yes. it's uh, contributed to a crime. What is a crime? A, a partnership, well, it, it, the dictionary, English dictionary definition is partnership in an evil action. Okay, what is the evil action? Well, well, uh, that's, a, that's a very interesting question because <laughs> then the moment you ask what is a crime, you ask what is the law? Yeah. And, you know, the law is a system which is to keep us in place and keep things civilised. And I think one of the aspects of being an artist is to uh, subvert aspects of civilization and to um, uh, break the law whenever possible. Um, you know, because the moment art becomes simply uh, uh, within a certain set of confines, in other words, you know, uh, what for example, this current government would like it simply to be, and this is something I'm very against, is is the idea that art is a sector and that it is an industry. Uh, I think that art is something which makes us fundamentally human and I think it contributes, our artistic drive, if you like, is what contributes to the development of science right from the outset of humanity. 
because it is, it is a desire to communicate and it is also a desire to make sense of the world through looking at and reproducing patterns. And what is mathematics and physics but a question of looking at those patterns and trying to understand them? I think that's part of the, uh, what you, you asked me. I think that science is, um, you know, there are some laws of the world that we, we know and we know how the world works. And science is about breaking them and uh, uh, rebelling against them and finding better ones, changing them. But that is interesting if it becomes part of a larger story in, in, in society uh, altogether. So when you ask me who are my readers who have in mind, uh, I, I have these two characters. One, as I said, is somebody who knows nothing about science. And I want to tell Luke there is something interesting going on here. Um, forget the details, forget the equations, forget the mathematics, forget the, the boring part of it. Uh, it doesn't matter how many particles are there in the standard model, whether they're 15 or 16, it doesn't matter which forces are. But there is, a, um, in our effort to, uh, to understand the world better, there is something dramatic that touches all of us, which is that the world is not the way it looks. And, uh, and uh, this is something that I think can interest everybody. That's, that's first, the first reader who I have in mind. So I try to talk to, to this reader. And the other one, which for me is equally important, uh, it's my own colleagues. In fact, it's the best of my own colleagues. Because uh, um, I, I'm not, I, I do science. I'm in full into this activity of trying to rethink. So every moment, I always uh, challenge the idea of my own colleagues at the same time, because I'm in this conversation. And what I want to write in, in a way that my colleagues are not going to complain that I'm saying something wrong, first of all, but also that they find something interesting. Mm -hmm. So in this book, Whitehall, I'm talking about my own research, my recent own research in the last five or ten years. But even when I write about science in general, I describe general relativity, for instance, I want to give the core of it, what it has subverted in our previous way of thinking, and do it in a way that my colleagues would bo both be agree, but also be surprised, say, oh, look, there is some new perspective on it. So I, I, I have arrived with these two, two readers. I, I enjoyed you said you also have, are aware that there's one reader that you annoy and displease, the intermediate type, who doesn't like seeing the parts missed out, and who says, hang on, about what about the jargon? Because as you said, you don't use the jargon. Yeah. Um, and you sort of say, imagine how shocked a sailor would be. Uh, instead of ease the jib, you should shout, let go of the small rope attached to the sail. But why is that so important to you? And then I'm going to ask what type of reader and why you came to that. Because jargon is a, of course, is useful. It's not there only for, for, you know, for keeping the others out. Uh, because it simplifies the language. Uh, you go on a, on a sailboat, you say the jib, you don't say this, the smaller sail, that one, not the big one. <laughs> but whatever can be said, can be said without a jargon. So if I want to talk to everybody, I don't want to use the jargon. And then the intermediate readers uh, the, the, the often don't like my book, exactly because I don't use the jargon, and also because I don't tell the details. And you know, the poor students, I don't know if there are students of physics here, the poor students who have struggled to a course class of quantum mechanics, 
And they've learned this and this and that, and they learn the Schrodinger equation. And then they, they, they read a book of mine in which I talk about quantum mechanics. They don't even mention the Schrodinger equation. They say, come on, this is not what I studied. And in a sense, it's true, because uh, um, I think that uh, one thing is to know the full path with all the complication techni technicalities that get to something about the world. One thing is just to get to the end point. And I try to take away all the details because my two readers don't need the details, right? And my colleagues know them already, so there's no point in me repeating them. And, and, and the person who is not, who does little, don't know little of the physics, doesn't care about the details, want to know just the core of the story. So Simon, which one are you? You did actually give away the question by putting your hand straight up. <laughs> oh, I'm the first one, yeah, yeah. And what brought you to Carlo's work? You're obviously passionate about it, one of the many uh, fans in the world of the arts and the creative arts. Yeah, what millions, you to his work? millions. Well, because um, for somebody to explain that reality is not what it seems is absolutely thrilling to uh, the rest of us who have no idea what kind of world we're really living in. We're constantly looking at things and kind of going, is this it? Is this it? Is, this is marvellous, but wait a moment. And we're getting caught in our own stories. I'm essentially a storyteller, and so I'm aware when I meet people that they have a story to tell and the kind of stories that they're uh, entrenched in. And I myself am entrenched in the society that I grew up in, and therefore I have certain beliefs, and I still am... Uh, um, my unconscious is constantly leading me in a path and it's not the only path. And so the moment there comes a storyteller who can open a door and make you see the world in a new way, that's absolutely thrilling. Um, uh, that was said of uh, Dickens, you know, by, F by, by Foster, by, by his um, biographer, who said, there, you know, when there, when there comes a man who can make you see the world in, different, in a different way while you're sitting in your armchair, your eyes fill with tears, you know, and this is, uh, uh, it's an enormous uh, relief because we're at, we're at a time where we're sailed with stories, uh, you know, in, in, in every moment of our lives. And so trying to find a story which feels truthful and uh, uh, also mind-blowing at the same time is incredibly uh, uh, exciting and it just constantly makes you see the world anew. And what I loved about the book, White Holes, was although I didn't understand all sorts of it, I immediately got a kind of, I immediately got an image, which was that the black hole is like a mouth and the white hole is like an arse, you know. So things are, <laughs> things are coming out of the arse, going in one end and coming out the other. And I thought, oh, that's that totally, the image you got? totally, <laughs> that is totally logical to okay, me. Interesting. You know, immediately, immediately, you know, there is little details like time reverses. So you go, you know, how does that come out of there. Anyway, Carlo can take care of that. But <laughs> the thought that there is a kind of organic structure which I can relate to my own body, I found extremely exciting. Oh, I'm so glad. I didn't get that at all, the human body part. Uh, but um, Next edition, I'm going <laughs> to add this that, version of it. Uh, perhaps we should hear the non-human body explanation of the white hole. I mean, a lot of that is obviously what happens, but from your jargon-free explanation... Why, why is it that, you, that something can't pass from the horizon of a black hole into a white hole? So the way, the way I put it in the book, it's, it's tell it by telling a story, exactly. Yeah. So the book is a, it's by telling the story of what would happen if we could 
go in front of a black hole, you know, wait there, think a moment, and think, all my books say that if I go there, I'm never coming back. And then if we enter, what happened, what happened next? And the, 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 in, in the book, I, I, I describe what, what, we go, what we're going to see before, what the, the time distortion, all this stuff, when we go in, and, uh, and uh, the kind of space which is inside, this long, long pit there. And then when you go down deep to the, to the center, and all this part is um, it's what we know. It's, you know, before the breaking the law, before the complicité. <laughs> um, because we know the law, the Einstein equations, which are what we have discovered about the world. And we rely on it, because we rely on it. But then when we go down to the center, uh, we have to break this law. We have to com commit the crime, because uh, we know that they, this, these laws are wrong there. We have good reason to expect these laws to be wrong there. They don't work, they don't make sense, they just... Uh... So we need something else. And this is the moment, it's down there, this is the moment in which we need the imagination, the creativity, the putting pieces together, the puzzle. And uh, this is what I've done all my life, try to study what happened when the Einstein equations are not good enough because they're quantum effect. We know that in the universe they're quantum effect, they're not taken account by these laws. So um, by bringing together different pieces, can, can we put up a story about this next step? Okay. And it's not a story in space-time, because space-time is what is described, very well described by, by, the, by the Einstein equations. So it's a sort of quantum space, quantum time. So it's a, that was the struggle. I think that science is about imagination, I believe, not just, question, not just the mathematics, measurement, it's about imagination. But imagination does not mean, uh, oh, let me imagine you know, flowers with ears. Uh, no, it's not, it's not just you know, random picking in the blue sky. That just produces bullshit, I think, okay? But usually when you need something, you want something, you have a problem, and then you, you know, you, there's your wall in front of you, you don't know, and then you walk along this wall back and forth and say, how do I go the other side, okay? And you look for the crack, you look for the, I can't do that, I can't do that, or maybe I could do that, okay? It's this, it's this effort. Does it work, does it not work? Um, and I, I suppose, you know, the way a piece of theater works or a piece of music works is a completely different sense in which a new piece of physics works. But they both either work or don't work. That's the point. I mean, you want, you want something that works. Uh, but, sorry, I'm interrupting you, but that, because I'm just, I'm just fascinated by this question of the imagination. Because, you know, people think that it's this extra thing, uh, whereas, in fact, it's what we do all the time. We're constantly imagining, uh, you know, in order for me to be able to speak these words, I've got to imagine the sentence and then put it out in a certain order. So what is actually going on? And of course, what is so fascinating is that the way that memory works, we know is to do with synaptic connections and making patterns in your brain. Um, but what we know also about memory is the fact that every time we remember that pattern in your brain, however many times you have remembered it, is slightly different because the brain can never reproduce exactly the same thing. In the sense, the universe never exactly reproduces the same thing. There's always some sense of change. So the memory 
uh, when it is when you are trying to remember something, I mean, if we're trying to remember something about our, our childhood, we have to reach into our brains and try and remember. But it's not there like in a computer, as we know. It's an organic process, so we put something back together again. Uh, and this is never the same thing the next time. So in other words, in order to remember, we are, it, it, memory itself is a creative act. So in a sense, memory and imagination are precisely the same thing. And when you say you have this thing in front of you and you are trying to do it, what we're using is all the different bits of our memory and then they form a new pattern. And then suddenly you find a new thing. And it's so interesting what you said about that because sometimes I have the feeling when I'm trying to make a show, or when we are trying to make a show, because in fact I don't believe that it's, I don't believe in this sort of thing of the singular genius, uh, particularly not in theatre. It's a kind of, it's like a hive mind, it's like a bunch of bees. You're all sparking off each other, and then you, you know, you put your sign, each, each brain becomes a little synapse, and then you start sort of, you know, spurting off against each other all the time. Uh, so it's an act of collective imagination. But I think the, 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 what you said about the... I have this impression with the company when we're working is that we write things down on a page. We have a big book and it's empty. So on the first page we write very, very detailed notes about what we know, what we do, this, that, the other, ta, ta, ta. The next page we know perfectly well is, is, is blank. But if we follow the rules on the first page and we get down to the bottom, and we're very precise about those, by the time we open the next page, it's already written. It's very clear, because, and that was the image I had of the, you know, of the scientific process. You go through absolutely all the steps, but then suddenly, something appears as a consequence of that. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. First of all, I, I agree that it's not... Uh, the process of imagining, discovering, thinking is not individual. It's also individual, of course, but it's mostly uh, collective. It's collective in all sorts of, sort of sense. Not only because we talk to one another, we do things together, but because the very thoughts that we have are collectively produced, are yes. part of a shared uh, thing that only exists because in this shared space in which we talk to one another and we... I, I read from books, I have, I, I, I talk to people, so there's this, uh, uh, I, I think an individual human being wouldn't be able to do anything of what... The, no, that would be the, completely... The, it wouldn't even be a new human being mute. in a sense, because yeah. we are also, I think, uh, but when you think about ourselves, in reality, we are largely thinking, 
what we think others think about ourselves. So even in our own identity, it's, there are the others who participate into that. But these collective things, you say in science you have these clear rules, you go ahead, and it's true. That's exactly what science does so well, that on the basis of something we think we have understood, we can see something else which uh, follows. And boy, it works. Sometimes it works spectacularly well, right? Einstein wrote this equation, and then somebody said, oh, look, there should be gravitational waves. And then, wow, yeah, we, we see them. It's a big machine, and we detect them. So this is a part of the story. But then, it's not enough. At some point, we get troubles. We get things that don't work well. And quantum gravity is exactly one of the things that don't work well. So when we go down in the black hole, we go down to the end. When we are there, science doesn't have current science, established science, doesn't have the resources to tell us what happened. We have a problem, okay? And imagination comes from a problem. Creativity yes. comes from a problem. Yeah. It's always a problem, a struggle, something that hits you, that, uh, that disturbs you, something that doesn't fit, doesn't work. Um, it's, uh, in, in a sense, I think it's true that struggle is what moves things ahead, right? It's like in dialectic materialism. And there is the creative act. And the creative act is, I think, what you're saying, we take pieces of our very vast knowledge, because we, our mind is full of stuff, right? Uh, we take pieces of our ideas of this is a pen, I know this is a pen, I know how it works. I know a ball that bounces up. I think, oh, maybe it bounces up. Maybe the white hole goes down and bounces also. You, know, you take something and you apply it to something else. You make an analogy, a metaphor, which is, Good, because it gives you an idea of what could happen, but it's not the same, of course, because an analogy is not, a, is not the same things. Yes. So you take some concept and you reuse it in a different framework, mixing up with other concepts, and you come up with something completely new. So uh, when Faraday came up with the idea of electric field, uh, the field he was mentioning were the fields of the peasants, with the wheat, okay, because it's extended, it's like that. But of course, an electric field is not the field of the peasant. It has something in common. So it takes this idea of, of the extension and brings it into fundamental physics. Maybe there is an entity there which is extended like a field, okay? Yeah. So trying to, what, why? Because he was trying to solve, he was in his laboratory and has this magnetic, electric thing that pull and push one another. It wouldn't make any sense. This doesn't work, this doesn't work. A force, like Newton has told me, there are forces that pull and push, but this doesn't work this way. There should be something else. What could it be? It's like, you know, it's like it was something everywhere, maybe like a field everywhere. So taking an idea for resolving a problem, bringing this piece, this piece, and this piece, and then most of the time it doesn't work, right? So you say, no, no, this is shit. I try something <laughs> else. And sometimes we just get to... I don't... It feels very much like our rehearsal room. Yeah, and I would say, it's not no, that, that we get to reality. Yeah. We get to a better way of conceptualizing reality. Yeah. One step ahead, or one step better, which allows to do more things, to communicate yes. more things, to understand. So that's what happened down the black hole. You, 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 and, and, and what happened a few years ago with my students, I opened the book with uh, me and my students discussing that. A student coming there and saying, look, we could take this piece of the equation and glue with the other piece of the equation so what was going on? Yeah, it's like a bounce there. So that's how we realize the idea 
that black holes and white holes, which were known, white holes was known since, uh, since Einstein, in a century or maybe 50 years ago, uh, could actually be glued and one could jump from one to the other inside there. So you can jump through this non-space-time, this quantum space-time from a black hole to a white hole. And white hole, we knew what it is because we're back home in a sense because Einstein theory tells us that white holes exist. But you just used two words. One is, with the two words I want to uh, um, uh, uh, think about. One is bounce, and the other is jump. You I, I see, you, I'm mixing two you, completely different things. Exactly. Um, so I'm the calling bounce, the same the thing. The bounce goes down and comes back up again. Yeah. So if you put something into a back hole, there's whoop, and it yeah. can, you know. Uh, but when you jump, there's that, for me, is very mysterious. And a wonderful mystery, because something goes, you know, it's like the... What I, I got obsessed without fully understanding it with the two slit experiment. Nobody yeah. understands it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's wonderful. Notoriously, not it's wonderful. Uh, it's totally magic. It's that completely the world, magic. The world yeah. is not the simple thing we thought. It's no. far more beautiful and challenging than, yeah. Um, but, you know, how can you, know, you, 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 you breezily talk about sort of, you know, uh, uh, quantum space-time and yeah. something jumping over it, but it's just... Sort of, well, the analogy is that... <clears throat> it's as if it's here one moment and then it's there the next. Yeah, it's a simple analysis. You see, if, if you think a ball bouncing, yeah. okay? If you think as a physicist, one way of thinking about that is that when, when the ball is going down... I know how to, there is a, there's an equation to describe how things accelerate. In fact, the equation was written by Galileo, Galileo Galilei, yeah. in the, at the very early moment of modern science. Uh, maybe people remember, x is one half a uh, t squared. Okay, so it's a, uh, it, it tells exactly how the thing goes down. Yes. Okay? Now, the same equation has a solution that describes the, 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 the ball going down, but the same equation has another solution which describes the ball going up. Of course, because if you kick a ball, that goes, goes up. It, it's slower and slower and slower, but it goes up. So you have two, two solutions. But what is happening in that moment is not described by these equations, of course, because this equation only... So the moment of the bounce is a jump from this solution to the other solution. Yeah. So it's something else which is yes. not described in this equation that takes you from one solution and boom, jumps you into the other solution. Yeah. And in this case, it's simple what it is. It's just the floor which is pushing up. So yeah. somehow it's just boom, it's yeah. an elastic thing and pushing yeah. up. Down there is not, there's no floor at, yeah. at the end of the... Something else. Yeah. And it's the quantum pressure, so to say, which yeah. does the same game. Right. But from the perspective of the Einstein... Theory is the jump from one solution, the black hole, to another solution, the white hole. Now, I did say before, do you sure you need me in this conversation? And I'm very happy, but I'm going to jump in very quickly just to take you back to the notion of taking the reader and yourself and all of us to a place when you can only describe it, a place we cannot go, a place, this imagination that you're talking about. And why it's so important to you, we, we cannot go into a black hole or a white hole. So it's your job to take us there with this imagination that you're trying to describe that's so important to you, this mystery. Uh, and I wonder if you can explain how you do that. How do you take us, as scientists have done uh, throughout the ages, to a place we cannot physically go? I think the, we all have basic fundamental experience 
in our life which is to change perspective. We all know that we can view something from one side and then move and see from another side. And changing perspective is a way to learn more, right? You, you go somewhere else and you go somewhere else. So by changing perspective, by putting yourself in a different position, you view things differently. And a lot of science, I think, has grown by learning how to change perspective. I mean, one of my one of the first books that I wrote is actually Anaximander. Anaximander is this, uh, uh, this uh, thinker of 26 centuries ago who understood that uh, uh, the sky is not just above us, it's all around us. And, and, and we don't live, uh, the universe is not just ground, earth, and, and sky above, but we live on this sort of stone. Uh, so what he did is, instead of viewing the universe from the earth, he just looked at the earth from, from, from far away, he changed perspective. And this game of changing perspective is how we, very often how we, we learn, right? We read Dickens. We have a completely different perspective on humans, right? Yes. Or, or we live. Uh, we read Dostoevsky, and suddenly yeah. humans are something else. Mm. Yes. Have a different, uh, different. And that's marvelous. That's exactly what we want from from. Or you know, we look uh, Vermeer, and uh, it's a different perspective of light. We see something we didn't see before, because we're seeing with different eyes, and. In, in this book, what I wanted to do, in fact, the book is not so much about white holes. It's about what it is to do theoretical science, I think. It's because even white holes, we don't even know if they exist, as I say very clearly at the beginning. It's an hypothesis. I think it is like that. I strongly believe it on Monday and Tuesday, then Wednesday, <laughs> Thursday, I say, no, no, this is silly. Okay, and then there's a weekend, and then Monday, I believe it again. So it's a, <laughs> I go through this. And uh, the way I describe this process is a, is, is a way of uh, changing perspective about, about things. And the best way of changing perspective is just go there and see how, how the world would look from the inside. I was surprised that there's so much talk about black holes. Black holes is the greatest discovery of the last 10 years in science, I would say, that they exist, that the universe is full of black holes. But everybody always describes black holes from the outside. I've never seen anybody describe the black hole from the inside, so that's what I wanted. That's the first point. So then, if you look at black hole from the inside, you can ask what happened down there. This idea of perspective, though, I think all the way through the book, there are so many life lessons or things you think through your science, through the idea of the importance of putting yourself in another place, understanding things from a different perspective, is something we greatly need in society. And it's something that theatre, I feel, that, you know, strives so much to do. If I might, isn't theatre by itself? Theatre usually, most of the time, is a bunch of human beings doing stuff together. Is it just the entire point that they have different perspective about yeah. things and that's what... Yeah, I mean, ooh, golly. Uh, uh, no? I didn't quite... Um, I'm trying to portray change perspective and talk about theatre now. <laughs> um, yeah, it's such a very odd thing to be doing uh, theatre, to be getting on stage with a sort of hat and a wig and pretending to be somebody else and everybody in the audience going, yes, we'll pretend that you're that person as well. It's a very odd exercise in collective imagination. One of the curious things that uh, there was a recent uh, scientific survey of theatre audiences in Chicago, I think about five, ten years ago, which put uh, heart monitors on the audience. 
and discovered that at a certain point in uh, theatre performances, everybody's hearts start to beat in unison. So they're all starting to become a single thing. The audience becomes a single thing. And you have that very strong impression if you are on stage. Uh, you'll hear all actors going, oh, they were, you know, they were good tonight, you know. Oh, they were terrible, you know. And what they really mean is the audience were together. Yeah. Or they were somehow all sort of uh, uh, separated. But I think there is, it, it, it's a very odd thing because we've arrived at theatre. Theatre wasn't, wasn't, you know, theatre is a relatively new thing. It's about 2,000 years old uh, in, in the sense of having a place. And then you go to that place and then you participate in it. In fact, theatre 2,000 years ago, of course, was something very different because if you imagine the Greek theatre, what happened was that a, a third of Athens came out to watch a performance. So it became a social act in which something happened collectively to the imaginations to all of these people. Indeed, they changed their perspective on something because you went through something, and as Aristotle says, you know, it, 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 it created a catharsis. So everybody cried together about what was happening and as a consequence it was a sort of you know form of collective mass therapy and they and then they changed their perspective on something it actually had a, a sort of force of course it's a very different thing now because if you go into the west end a lot of it is about of course making a profit so it being the same thing every single night um, but you know the idea of theater being one thing i think is very curious because theater is part of our lives theater is our the you know our weddings our funerals our mm. getting together at a feast our dances it's all it is a fundamental aspect of being a human being it's about telling stories and telling stories collectively it so happens it has gone off in lots of different ways because human beings think like that they think like rabbits you know Ooh, let's do that and that and that you know or a bunch of sort of maggots in a box and so you get all of these different forms happening but the fundamental idea of theater is i mean i think that must be part of you know it, it be, must begin with telling stories mm. uh, and it must begin very often, probably, uh, at night with uh, fire. So there will already be a, 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 a heightened form, you know, there will be the shadow behind you, there will be the stars above you. And so it will be about trying to put a pattern on the world. You, 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 you tell a story or you play something or you dance and it gives you a form. The dance will give you a form of the question of your libido and your eros. So you dance the dance of uh, companionship or love, or you dance the dance of tragedy and so on. But it just gives a pattern and a form to it, which is, uh, I think, the idea of it being a, something as art or culture, the idea that art and culture is something separate from who we are, and it's a thing over there that you go and do, for me, is an anathema. It's absolutely ridiculous. It's like saying, yes, yeah, so science is just a sort of thing over there that we like. No, it's everywhere, like nature, you know. And the idea that nature is something separate, of course, is absolutely insane. We're all part of nature, and we can't escape it as we can't escape the planet. Uh, uh, all of these things are, are interlinked. And so 
I find it very, sometimes very difficult to talk about theatre because, uh, yes, I am part of that narrative and I do stand up on a stage and I do make a fool of myself on that stage, you know, uh, for money, uh, which is a fine and honourable tradition. And I come from a fine and honourable tradition of charlatans and, and tricksters and idiots, you know, that's, that I think is, I'm very happy to be part of that, um, that uh, tradition. Uh, but that is only one aspect of the fact that theatre pervades uh, our lives. And, and, and when I was making a show on mathematics called The Disappearing Number, I went to mathematical lectures in London, you know, of which I understood nothing. I went to see a, a mathematical lecture on something called Ritchie Flow. Does that mean anything to you? I studied the Ritchie Flow at some point. Did you? Yeah, yeah, good. <laughs> so I watched it. And I was absolutely fascinated by all of the mathematicians, listening to it, the young people, and then questions. I understood absolutely nothing. But what fascinated me was the theatre of it, because it was exactly like a theatre. We were in a lecture hall, and somebody was doing something, and clearly meant a lot, meant a lot to a lot of people, and people were changed by the idea of Ritchie flow. Um, uh, it's an um, Italian, Ritchie. What? Ritchie Curbastro. Ritchie, Italian, yeah, yes. yeah, I, I imagine. Yeah, um, uh, <laughs> um, but it then formed the whole basis of uh, the beginning of the show. I thought, right, okay, we're going to make a mathematical lecture hall. Uh -huh. And indeed, the entire show started with an actress who, who was able to put up on stage the Riemann hypothesis in its Oof. entirety. She remembered the whole thing and, and wrote it up. And she explained how... Um, uh, how Ramanujan, uh, this remarkable uh, Indian mathematician, when he wrote to G.H. Hardy, he got it wrong and explained how he, how he um, you know, did all the mathematics. So instead of trying to learn an enormously long and complex soliloquy from Shakespeare, she learned the Riemann hypothesis and put it up on stage. I made the audience watch the whole thing, uh, which was very exciting. Um, <laughs> And they were kind of waiting for the gag, you know. <laughs> I didn't. Which never really, it sort, of did it sort of did come because I had somebody interrupted at a certain moment. But that was a bit of a digression <laughs> and not really I, an answer. If, if, whether you, if you ever reflect on that, I was going to say you must be so wholly in agreement with the frustration of people trying to separate art from science or us from the universe. I mean, you end by saying so importantly, when we seek to understand white holes, we do not do so as pure reason, not as part of a world of ours being different from the objects we're trying to understand. We are processes guided by the same stars, and we often forget that as humans. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, I, no, I, I agree profoundly on two levels. One is that um, when, when you say trying to separate theatre as a separate things from the rest of society. You know, I did science most of my life. I started writing popular science very late in my life. It's my 50s. Um, and one of the, it, it happened a little bit by, by chance, but one of the reasons that was the driving force is for me for writing is exactly uh, this rebellion against this, how could anybody think that science is a separate thing from the rest of, 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 of what we do, what we are? We, civilization as a whole, meaning what we do all together ensemble, it's a complex thing in which we keep interacting. And uh, the way we think, the way we view the world, uh, it's constantly affected 
by the science we know, the art we know, the theory we know, by our parents, by the books we read, by the, whoever was religious in our, whoever was anti-religious, this enormous complexity of things. And, and, and each one of these things could only exist because all the others exist. And the way they keep changing, because this is not a static thing, it's a process, process that go ahead, is by all influencing one another uh, all together. So I'm very sympathetic with your 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 reaction against. So I don't want to say what is theater separated from from uh, from the rest because I think the science is just one of the ingredients of this um, constant efforts we have to 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 think about the world and to rethink about the world to change yes. the way we think about the uh, about the world. And the second level, which is stronger, at some point you said there's no nature out there. Nature is not the forest out there. Nature is what we are. And I think nature is not only what we are in the sense that, of course, we are we're, we're humans, we're, 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 we're animals, we are we're biological things, we are natural things. But we often make the mistake, I think, of... Uh, thinking that there is nature, and then thinking that there is sort of rationality, our mind, mm. which is what describes nature, okay? Mm. And I think this is a source of infinite confusion and infinite mistake. For instance, one of the typical mistakes that this uh, produces is that the absolute rationality that we are can get a certainty about some something we know for sure about, uh, okay. And I don't think there is this rationality, because this rationality is just the uncertain and, and, and not very good to walk functioning of our brain together with the other brain, uh, which is a product of the evolution of our little ass monkey, uh, you know, used to uh, eat bananas and do that, and then, and then we start talking together with it. So we are, our ideas are part of nature. Our idea of nature itself is a part of nature. Our rationality is, is, is part of nature. If we see it in this way, we can abandon pretensions of certainty, of completeness, of anything like that. But forget about that. That's silly. It's just a, an illusion that somehow we overestimated ourselves, I think. And we work little by little in, uh, in, in understanding one another, in finding ways of living with nature, living with, with ourselves, knowing our limitations. So I think that uh, the idea that we are part of nature, it's essential at all levels. Not, not just to understanding us using biology, using other, and not just because, you know, we are a civilization, we are you know, fucking up nature now ecologically, and there we are confronting that. But also to come out with the idea that uh, rationality is one of the greatest tools we have. I don't want to to dismiss it as is irrelevant, but we shouldn't overestimate it. It's just, uh, you know, like our legs. We cannot run faster than something. We're not going to understand everything about the universe. The only thing we can do about the universe is as pieces of the universe we interact with the rest of the universe, as you were saying, because we have memories, we bring them together, we try to organize, we find patterns, and the reality that we see is the set of patterns that we have understood, we have recognized. But these patterns are such, of course, because reality is in a little bit like that. There is a glass there, of course. There is it's a fact, there is a glass. But these are the patterns which are relevant for us, that we, we pick up. Okay? So we shouldn't even over 
estimate our own sides, our own understanding. Should be aware of this limitation and work with them and work well with them. That's what I think. I mean, the question comes up for me, and this is completely goes in a completely different direction. I, uh, uh, and it's a social question because you are a scientist, uh, but I'm also interested in it from my point of view because I'm somebody who broadly is called uh, an artist of, of some sort. And at the moment, there is this... Uh, I was reading an article um, not very long ago about the, uh, the fact that um, there is a suspicion of scientists. Uh, and that is so, at the moment, uh, at the highest level of uh, power structures. Uh, and what was sort of, at one point, science had a very, very specific um, and uh, really, really strong uh, place within society, although that might also be an illusion. Uh, but there is a, a, an extraordinary sense at the moment that of people trying to call into question science and scientists, as if uh, precisely what you're saying, which is that uh, science is not set. It is an, a constantly changing and organic and moving and developing things. Whereas, of course, mass consumer capitalist society wants certainties and that this equals that. So that, you know, when people say, well, we don't know what COVID is going, the scientists would say, we don't know, but we advise this. Uh, and then the politicians say, kind of go, well, that's not true. Have you encountered kind of distrust, an increasing distrust or distrust of, uh, of, of science in the last uh, time that you've been working, given that you're a very public yes, scientist? Um, I have, but at the same time, I also see a lot of confidence in science. I mean, after all, you know, you mentioned COVID, vaccines arrived and changed the data. Uh, about COVID. People recognize that in many countries. I feel that, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm completely with you w what you said about um, asking science too much, pretending science is, 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 is too much. I mean, the first thing you hear from a scientist is that, well, that's what we know and that's what we don't know. And that's what we think is the case, but we're not sure. I can say, I think it's the case that there are white holes, but I'm not sure. I'm pretty confident that there are black holes. I mean, there are some things which are well established. That, Science has been infinitely useful for society. I mean, I'm 60, whatever, I'm a 67, 60, I don't know, 66, I don't remember what age am I. The, the, the life expectation in Europe until middle age was 35, okay? So I would be dead if it wasn't for scientific methods, and most of us would be dead. I mean, there are not many people, <laughs> imagine, half of you would be dead if it wasn't for... But, Nevertheless, we die by cancer, we die by all sorts of things because we don't know, we don't know yet. But I think the mistake, it's often done. And I think this, what has created the trouble, is when politics hides behind science. Social decision, political decision, important decision for all of us, should not be taken by scientists. Because scientists can say, look, as far as we know, this is what's going to happen if you do that, okay? And politics makes a mistake if it ignores that. And some politicians ignore that. 
and they are uh, 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 damaging all of us. But the decisions are complicated. And COVID was a very good example because if you, you know, if you, if you, if if if, if, if you lock down people, then you have less old people dying. It's a fact. But you have less money in society because you produce. Okay. So here's a choice. Okay. You do some political choices as more old people dying, and other political choices as more rich society. Okay. This is a real serious choice. It's not issue of science. If a politician makes a choice and then says, because science said so. You know, come on, you politician, take your own responsibility. You say, okay, I'm making this choice because the push, the pull, the complexity, the discussion, is a society as a whole that should take serious. Uh, science is a tool. It's a, it's a fantastic tool we have. It's not the ultimate arbiter of the decision we should make. Because reality is always more complicated than the science we have. We don't have a science of all reality of that understand everything that understand. We have a science which understand a little bit of bugs, a little bit of how things fall, a little bit of what calls, and that's it. I mean, that's what you sort of uh, emphasize so continually through this book, that we shouldn't, and you don't want to, cling to absolute truths, the science of this is fact and this is not, that you should be able to change your mind, you say Einstein did. And the importance is that we should always leave behind old ideas, not cling to old ideas, and find the new. And that is what science is. We mustn't imagine that it is an absolute truth. Yeah, that's exactly the, that's exactly the point. It's not an absolute truth. There the, are the things which are understood which are very reliable. I mean, the Earth is not flat, it's round. We all believe that. It's a sphere. In fact, it's not even a sphere. It's a I'm not sure everybody believes that, but anyway. Yeah. No, no, yeah. but they're stupid people. <laughs> I mean, there are plenty of our politicians <laughs> who, uh, who I think probably think the world is flat. Yeah. Most of the people who are currently governing us in this country, anyway. Um, so uh, the, 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 the fact that we have very reliable information about so many things is so incredibly useful to all of us. We build technology, we do, we do things, we, we live much longer, um, has nothing to do with the fact that so much we don't know and so much scientific knowledge is uncertain, and that's, and that's okay. And it's more than that, that's what you were referring to. Very often, progress comes from questioning things that we think are sure, we are sure about. And so, something I keep coming back in my book is that uh, it seems to me that the most intelligent attitude, but also the most honest, the most honest, the most human attitude, is to be always aware that we might be wrong. And uh, science comes from listening to the other. And that's also a political message that comes, I think, constantly out of, out, out of this, um, this way of thinking. Namely, we learn not by being sure of what we know, but being aware that our perspective might be partial and being open to other perspectives, which is exactly what we're not doing politically all the time. And that's absolutely uh, the, uh, the, the point of art, if you like, of the, the making of, of things. Is you're, with every piece of art, you're looking at it from another uh, uh, perspective. It's just like opening a, a curtain, saying, well, let's look at this canvas. It's just black. So now what do we see? Let's look at the Rothko's uh, events. Now, what do we see? And that's the, uh, uh, that is constantly um, 
you know, if you're exploring uh, in art, that's absolutely fundamental, I think. It's exactly the same thing, changing perspective all the time. Um, and in the theatre, of course, it's collectively just saying, look at this, now what do you think? I feel I, I knew that the time that I had with you two would absolutely race by. I said I wouldn't be looking at my phone, but it is time to um, take the mic to the audience and give give us your questions. It's Can already I please... gone. One hour is gone already. Huh? One hour is gone already. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> time is fair. Um, time goes well. Yes, time. We didn't even get to so many concepts of time, which we uh, we needed to get to. But can I ask, um, please, for you to keep your questions to questions, um, just because we've, I'm sure we'll have many to get through, and um, I know that you'll have many also thoughts, and we have been talking about many thoughts, and just stick to questions if that's all right. Thank you very much. Okay, so we'll have. The gentleman there. Yes, thank you very much for this fascinating discussion. Turning to astronomy, if we take the number of estimated stars in each galaxy, which is roughly 300 billion, and the number of galaxies that we believe there are in this observable universe, which may be something like 600 billion, multiply those two numbers by the average size of the star, which we think is half the size of the sun, we come up with a number which is followed by 50 zeros. So that's the volume of, let's call it stellar matter. If we estimate the size of the universe, it's a number <laughs> followed by 80 zeros. So there's a disproportion of 30 zeros between those two numbers which is roughly the disproportion between a grain of sand and the volume of the planet Earth. So what's happening in all that empty space? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great joke. <laughs> it's, a very good, it's a very subtle question, in fact. It's a question that I ask myself because there are two possible answers to that. One is that, uh, well, nothing is happening. It's just empty space. It's just uh, the, 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 the majority of the universe is just empty and nothing is happening. It's, uh, I mean, nobody, nobody ever ordered the universe to be, to be interesting in any corner, right? The universe, whatever it is, is, we just... That's one possible answer, which is challenging because there's this immensity of empty space, which is, in fact, uh, one of the things that make your heart, you know, <gasps> When, when you think about it, when you try to compare with your experience, it's just a boy, how this immensity. But there's another possible answer, which is maybe there's all sorts of things that happen in this apparent emptiness, because in fact it's not completely empty, right? There are gravitational waves going through, there are electromagnetic waves going through, there are quantum fluctuations of the vacuum, there are all sorts of things. So is that really empty in the sense that uh, nothing is happening, or is just nothing is happening relevant to us? Rele relevant to us? And maybe there's some... Did, did you remember the Hitchhiker Guide to the Galaxy when, when, when the yeah. guy opened says, uh, uh, says, let's look planet Earth. It says, a completely relevant little planet, nothing interesting happens. <laughs> <laughs> it's maybe a perspective, maybe from somebody else's perspective, we are just irrelevant part of the universe. So I don't know which one is which. 
question for both Carlo and Simon. Uh, I've heard Yoval Harari recently say that all human conflict is a battle between truth and beauty. Do you think they're in conflict? Just a small, just a small question. <laughs> do, 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 do we think that truth and beauty are in conflict? Yes. Um, well, no. <laughs> what do you think, Carla? <laughs> I, I think they are... The, the, they're good friends. Sometimes they have a fight. Yeah, I think sometimes they're, they're fighting. Yeah, yeah but then yeah, they, yeah. they can get together. A, a they long. get together and they make love. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I when, think, when, I mean, when they're together, it's great. It's great, wow. yeah. It's absolutely <laughs> true. I mean, when I was making a disappearing number, I was reading A Mathematician's Apology by G.H. Hardy, and he said, a mathematician like a painter and poet is a maker of patterns. And beauty for the mathematician, he says, is the first test of whether your, uh, uh, whether your formula is good or not. Uh, and of course, E equals MC squared is the most beautiful, extraordinary um, sort of uh, concentration of one idea in such a tiny, tiny form. Um, uh, so there is a very uh, close relationship between um, uh, beauty and uh, truth. Hardy says there is no place in the world for ugly mathematics. Now, whether that's true or not, I'm, I'm not a mathematician, but that's what he said. Um, and certainly, in working through that piece and trying to get mathematics, the outer reaches of mathematics, explained to me by Marcus du Sautoy, who's uh, uh, the Simony professor of the, whatever it is, the dissemination of scientific knowledge. Um, he's a mathematician. Uh, I began to see, because I, I was very bad at mathematics, and uh, as everybody knows you, if you're bad at math, well, not, not, not absolutely sort of if you've had a bad experience as a child, you tend to exaggerate your um, unmathematical mind. But I did begin to understand uh, the beauty of mathematics and began to see the kinds of shapes that Carlo is talking about, how you make an analogy and how you use metaphor. And metaphor, of course, is our language, and, and it's the human language. It's the language of poetry, uh, and it is also the language of the theater and so on. But, you know, for example, if you're making something in the theater, you go, when something, it, it, it's not always the case that when something looks very beautiful that it's very truthful, because as I said at the beginning, if you're in the theater, your business is being a charlatan. And so you have to, you have to, to a certain extent, you're trying to sell your, 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 your product and make it look beautiful. But very often, something just falls and feels right. The pieces come together. It is both beautiful, and in that moment, it feels absolutely truthful. And the key thing about it is, I don't know why. I really do not know why that is. It suddenly appears in front of you. And then those are very wonderful moments that you, you, you can find. I don't know if any of that is recognizable to you. Yes, of course. I mean, in, 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 in thanks, very, very, 
very often you find something beautiful. Yeah, yeah, that's it. But then there also the one of the Huxleys said uh, wrote, "There's nothing as sad in science like a very beautiful idea destroyed by brute fact <laughs> <laughs> yeah. of of life." So, that, so beauty sometimes can also be misleading. Of course, beauty is, is not out there, right? It's in the eyes of the of of us. So we are the judges of beauty. Uh, so sometimes we misjudge, or we. I find beautiful some things that people, other people don't find beautiful. That's true, but there is something which, in which beauty and truth go together, where you... Oh, yeah, very, very much so. You suddenly... Uh, what you said is that mathematics is generally beautiful. Is that what mathematicians do is they do beautiful mathematics. And the, 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 the physical theories that work so well, they're very beautiful, incredibly beautiful. Thank you. Um, Carlo, as a former medievalist, can I thank you for structuring your beautiful book around Dante. It was wonderful. Um, my question is, is, will reveal that after being a medievalist, I did not become a quantum physicist, um, which is, as I understand it, you say that white holes have, at, uh, gra have for a force of gravity. Yeah. Um, uh, and therefore, at the horizon of a white hole, we would see things to, uh, from a distance stopping. But would those things, objects, whatever, what, would they travel into the white hole and what would happen to them when they did? No, they don't enter into a, in, into a white hole. If you, if you fall toward a, a, toward a white hole, um, what happens is that you always stay out and at some point you clash with whatever comes out of the white hole. Uh, and if you just don't, at some point the white hole disappears and, and, and you... you, you you, you skip it. It's, it's, it's one of the, there are a few pages in the book which are tricky, I, I, I know, which I try to explain exactly why white holes and black holes look the same from the outside. And it has to do with the dramatic time dilation, the change of time. It's not easy to explain. I don't know if those pages are comprehensible. I struggled a lot. very helpful diagrams. Uh, yeah, I struggled <laughs> a lot to make them. It's... Uh, just before we go to the next question, perhaps you could reflect importantly on, on this idea of why Dante comes all the way through, why you used him. Did he come to you after this idea Dante? of white holes? Yeah. Why? Well, first He's of all, your friend, your love all the way through. Well, first of all, I love Dante. Yeah. <laughs> Dante is fantastic. I couldn't work out if you were talking about my first love, your uh, partner or Dante in the pages. <laughs> oh, yes, it's ambiguous at purpose. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know how many people... I mean, in Italy, Dante is known by everybody because you study at school, like a little Shakespeare here or something like that. Um, and, uh, but, you know, I, I go in front of black hole, there's this, you know, this door, this portal saying, now lose your hope if you go in. That's exactly what happened to Dante when he goes in front of the hell. And then he goes down the hell all the way and then comes out back to see the stars again from the hell in paradise. So this, while I was, I didn't think it before, but while I was writing this book, I was thinking, oh my God, I'm just copying the Divine Com Comedy. <laughs> Here, I'm, I'm redoing, somebody has already written this. Um, and then there is this part which really touched me because there's this part about his relation with Virgilio, his, uh, Virgil, his, uh, his guide, which he loses at the very moment in which he goes down and he finds his great love, which is 
Petriche, which I found so much exactly what I was doing. I was going inside with a guide, which is Einstein, Einstein mm. equations. Yeah. And then in the moment in which I finally get to what I want, my love, quantum gravity, I lose the guy. So there was so much. And Dante is so rich. Dante is really seeing a completely different perspective about reality. It's, a, it's this uh, profound voyage, I would say, into the mind, into the, the possible ways of seeing humanity, the, the possible way of seeing moral uh, uh, ways of thinking about humans, the complexity of what is in our soul, in our spirit, which is the same as the complexity of our brain, how many neurons doing funny things we have. And I think that's what makes the book really remarkable because it is a journey. And that feels extraordinarily familiar uh, to everybody because everybody makes journeys. That is the nature, the metaphor of human life is that we are constantly on a journey, but we also make daily journeys to come here and go there and uh, uh, cross continents and so on, and we, uh, although I was being facetious about the, 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 the black hole being the mouth and the white hole being the arse, it's nonetheless a journey which is, journey. Uh, is part of the body, and that's what feels so persuasive in the book uh, as a metaphor. Uh, yes, and indeed the way you turn to us as a reader all the way through and bring us with you, take us with you. You say it's hard at the beginning and then you have to keep checking in with us. Are you with me? You can skip these next bits if you like. They're a little bit complicated. I'll see you on page, whatever it might be. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah let's take this gentleman's question here. Thanks. Just uh, th This is sort of much more general, but a word that popped into my mind when Simon was describing theatre was the word ritual. And it then occurred to me that actually... You know, in the scientific field, ritual is also important. But it seems to me that ritual is A, comforting, and B, very static. So how do you challenge that <laughs> when you're at work? Um, um. <laughs> there is a fantastic book, which I recommend to everybody, uh, Rappaport is the author, about rituals, in which uh, the author is one of the great anthropologists, um, and it's a, it's a long uh, sort of summary of his work reflecting on the, the very beginning of uh, what we call humanity, uh, what, what makes us human, so to say, how, how it developed. And he put rituals at the very center of that. Um, uh, animals have rituals, they have um, patterns of behavior that they repeat that seems at first sight not useful. Uh, they do things, things that repeat, uh, but they have meaning in their social communication, in their staying together. And Rappaport uh, thinks that what happened to humankind is that these rituals were um, that, that humans developed, and that's one of the reasons religion has been so crucial in the development of humanity, um, were foundational for our living together, creating this common thing, which is a common worldview. 
that we share and we think about. And I think when you were talking about theater and you were thinking about Athens, that's also ritual, of course, right? Theater is a ritual. Yes. And the ritual is something that teaches us deeply, that tells us something. I, I, for me, theater is... Uh, sometimes theater is boring to death. Oh, yeah, terrible. When... When it works, you, you, it's if you're bored in the theatre, you're bored like nowhere else. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's absolutely unspeakable. Yeah, I agree. But when it works, is the most. Yeah, it's the most. And isn't it transforming, intense? <laughs> and you really, I mean. But I, the, ri the ritual in theatre is that you have to give something up. In the ritual of theatre, is a sacrifice. So what the audience has to sacrifice is uh, uh, time. Because in the, in the theatre, you can't put on pause and go and have a pee and make a cup of tea and come back and then carry on. You have to obey the time of the two hours traffic of the stage. And so you give up that time. And particularly now, that is almost the political act. It, because yeah. we do not think of time in, the, in that sense. And when I think of ritual, I think, and the origin of theatre, again, it is... Um, uh, begins with the telling of stories and then the moment you begin to tell the story the other person is giving up on their time as the story comes out and we find these sequence of events which then lead to a conclusion or not a conclusion because in most indigenous cultures there isn't that rather western idea of a story where you get a climax it tends to just peter out and uh -huh. so uh, the rituals uh, are very different. And in fact, there's a ritual that I uh, believe yes. in is when I meet somebody like Carlo, I have a ritual that I give them a book and I've got this book here. And in fact, uh, there's something which about this, if I can read it, which is sort of joins a little bit because when I, I, I knew I was meeting Carlo, one of the stories I knew was that when he was 17, he uh, sort of by himself hitchhiked uh, uh, across Europe and slept uh, uh, in fields and all sorts of places. And I could imagine Carlo looking up at the stars. And that was an image that really struck me, which is why I wanted to uh, read him this bit of John Berger called Once in a Story. It's only the first bit, and it doesn't take long. It's all right. Um, and it goes like this. We are both storytellers. Lying on our backs, we look up at the night sky. This is where stories began. Under the aegis of that multitude of stars, which at night filch certitudes and sometimes return them as faith. Those who first invented and then named the constellations were storytellers, tracing an imaginary line between a cluster of stars gave them an image and an identity. The stars threaded on that line were like events threaded on a narrative. And I was thinking of Dante there. Imagining the constellations did not, of course, change the stars, nor did it change the black emptiness that surrounds them. What it changed was the way people read the night sky. The problem of time is like the darkness of the sky. 
Every event is inscribed in its own time. Events may cluster and their times overlap, but the time in common between events does not extend as law beyond the clustering. A famine is a tragic cluster of events to which the great plough is indifferent, existing as it does in another time. I, I think very sadly that is all we have got time for. But um, Carlos had an ex absolutely exhausting day flying all the way from Canada this morning. So he won't be signing... Well, exactly, and being here this evening. Um, he won't be signing books. But the books are all signed. If you've got a copy, it'll be signed. If you haven't got a copy, you're obviously going to want to get one. It's just outside. And, you know, we've, we've gone on some of the journey here on the stage this evening. But you, you are taken inside the horizon, new ways of thinking. Uh, there's so much. It's a beautiful book, not just on the outside. And a wonderful conversation. So great to have you both here with us this evening. Thank you all very much indeed for coming. This episode starred Carlo Ravelli and Simon McBurney and was presented by Hannah McInnes. This episode and this show are made by me and Nicole Wong and John Doughty is our editor. This isn't the first time we've brought Carlo together with the leading figure in the arts. Check out his previous conversation with visual artist Cornelia Parker and science filmmaker David Malone way back in your feed. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.